Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, President of the SCOI, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Corporate governance will be a term very familiar to our members and listeners, and the definition going something along the lines of the rules and structures by which an organisation is controlled and directed. The central bank has issued corporate governance requirements and other documents, and it is clearly an area of focus for the central bank. But despite all the various codes and guidance, it can seem sometimes more of an art than science to get the model correct for individual businesses. And currently, new themes are being added like diversity and inclusion. So to enlighten us on some of the main themes and challenges, I am delighted to welcome as my guests today, Lorna Smith, Alison Gibney and Karen Killalay of Maples. Lorna Smith is a partner in the Dublin Financial Services Regulatory Team at Maples and Calder, the Maples Group's law firm. Lorna has over 10 years experience in financial services regulation and in addition to more traditional industries like banking, insurance and investment services, Lorna's practice also focuses on growth sectors such as fintech, alternative lending and sustainable finance. Karen is a partner and the head of the employment law team in the Maples Group. Karen has over 20 years experience advising employers. She has extensive experience advising financial services businesses on all aspects of employment law including workplace investigations, performance and disciplinary issues, together with HR policy and advisory matters. Alison is a senior regulatory executive in the Irish Financial Services Regulatory Team in the Maples Group. Alison has over nine years experience as a compliance and regulatory professional within the financial services industry. Alison's particular focus is the provision of technical regulatory expertise, assisting clients across all industry sectors. Alison also advises on authorizations, top-up permissions and change of control notifications for regulated firms. Lorna, Alison and Karen are here today to discuss the principles and practices of good corporate governance for regulated firms. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast and thank you for talking to us today. Lorna and Alison, over the last number of years we've seen increasing expectations and increased focus on corporate governance by the central bank. What has been your experience in your firm of this? Thanks, Cathy, um, and thanks for that comprehensive introduction. Yeah, so from a corporate governance perspective, uh, we're definitely seeing this feature more and more in engagements with the central bank. The focus tends to be around things like how does the board engage um, on market developments? What is the structure of board meetings? Who gives reports to the board and what form do they take? And is there a discussion about these reports at the meeting? And is this active and engaged discussion as opposed to just taking the reports as read? One of the key expectations I suppose is for firms to prepare detailed board and committee packs which would include the agendas um, of the board meetings materials um, such as 
service provider reports and minutes for all board and committee meetings. In CBI inspections of late, firms are being asked to provide a copy of the recent board minutes and board packs. As the bank is increasingly, I suppose, communicating with firms by way of industry letter, by including those letters in the board packs and documenting discussions and action points in the minutes of that meeting, this can be de- it can be demonstrated, I suppose, to the bank that its expectations have been reviewed, discussed, and any policies and processes and procedures have been updated as a result. Just by way of example, um, some questions we have seen being asked in recent prison meetings are have been around discussion and the level of challenge of board meetings. Uh, do the minutes reflect the challenge discussed? And as a director, do you contribute to the challenge items? So I suppose all this can be supported and really emphasises the importance of having comprehensive board packs and minutes for each meeting, which, which can be provided to the central bank on request. We've also seen a lot of focus on corporate governance and new authorization applications and on top of requests. So this remains a key focus for the central bank. The mind and management has to be located in Ireland to get an Irish license. And there was a lot of focus on corporate governance as part of the Brexit related applications that we've worked on over the last two years. So the central bank really honed in on substance, internal controls and oversight generally. We've also worked with the clients working through risk mitigation programs issued by the central bank following prism inspections and audit findings following an internal or external audit report focused on corporate governance. So these have included things like completing internal reviews of how board packs and meetings are managed, having key procedures and documents in place like a terms of reference for the board and key committees, having fit for purpose succession plans for the board and senior management functions, board composition reviews, including looking at director tenure and how the board is refreshed and at what frequency and how key roles and reporting lines are documented and implemented within the firm. So I think corporate governance remains very relevant for regulated firms for the entire lifespan, really, from authorization and through the ongoing engagement with the central bank. Okay, thanks, Lorna and Alison. And just to take one of the themes that you raised there, and, and if we could expand on it a bit, minute books and, and board packs. So they can really play a central role in a central bank inspection. Yeah, Cathy, absolutely. That's right. Not just really in inspections, but they can be central to kind of a variety of engagements with the central bank. So we've seen minutes being reviewed as part of themed inspections or prism inspections as well, where the central bank often requests for the minutes and of either board meetings or committee meetings to be submitted ahead of a meeting or an interview with the central bank under prism. So minutes also played a central role in some of the more kind of contentious industry-wide engagements that we've seen with the central bank over the last few years. So two examples would be the tracker mortgage examination on the banking side and the business interruption cover review on the in the insurance sector and the central bank will review the minutes to identify what decisions have been made what information was considered as part of considering any of the the key issues like customer impact what questions were asked whether any challenges evidenced in the minutes and what the ultimate rationale was for adopting a particular approach so that they can hold the board to account so minutes are really becoming increasingly important as a way for firms to demonstrate good corporate governance and compliance more generally but as a practical point documents are requested by the central bank in soft copy and they're uploaded to a a forum through the central bank system so the documents themselves can also kind of be interrogated for changes in version control so it's important that if changes are made to drafts of minutes or board packs that they can be objectively explained to the central bank for example if an individual board member's comments have been amended the central bank might ask why that is so we've seen this being challenged by the central bank in some of the more contentious issues and we've seen company secretaries and the board member themselves being called in for interview to explain changes. So that's just something to bear in mind in terms of version control when when minutes are being circulated. Okay, very good, Lorna. And just from your experience, what would you see as being best practice for firms? 
for, I suppose from an effective corporate governance framework will be to ensure that the firms uh, through its board is properly operated within the systems and controls that it has in place. As Lorna mentioned, governance risk is one of the key risks identified by the bank under its prism framework. And as you mentioned in your intro, the, the central bank has issued corporate governance codes to support firms in meeting their governance obligations as well as understanding what the central bank's expectations are. So the bank has issued, as I said, codes and together with other industry bodies in certain instances, I spoke to to a variety of regulated firms across sectors, including credit institutions, insurance undertakings, investment firms and market operators, funds and fund management companies and fund service providers as well. While there's specific codes applicable to certain regulated firms, essentially the same principles apply to the majority of fund service providers, such as the requirement to have robust governance arrangements, well-defined lines of responsibility and effective processes for managing risks faced by the firm. So just to hone in, I suppose, on, on a few examples that are set out in, in certain co- codes, which, which Lorna has already touched on. The Investment Firms and Market Operators Code, which was issued in November 2018, sets out specific requirements around the composition of the board to have sufficient size and expertise to adequately oversee the operations of the firm. Additionally, the majority of the boards should consist of independent non-executive directors. There's a requirement to appoint a chair person and the chairperson should possess relevant financial services expertise, qualifications and experience. There's also a requirement to have board committees for high impact firms. There's a requirement to establish an audit committee, a risk committee and a remuneration committee. Under the insurance undertakings corporate governance requirements, there's a requirement to uh, submit an annual compliance statement in accordance with the guidelines issued by the bank, specifying whether the insurance undertaking has complied with the requirements. And then also under the collective investment schemes and management companies, there's a requirement to review the overall board performance and that of individual directors also annually with the documented review taking place at least once every three years. Boards are expected to attend and participate and an attendance schedule should form part of that annual informal board review and the chairman should be reviewed at least every three years. Also, a board should document its procedures for dealing with conflicts of interest and should review compliance with those procedures at least annually. One of the main areas we're working with clients at the minute is implementing a set of specific terms of reference covering the scope and the nature of the activity of the board and the guidelines for its operation. So I suppose this terms of reference would form part of the company's overall governance framework together with its constitution and its regulatory manual or its compliance framework which would include its full suite of policies and procedures and controls. So we would expect the terms of reference to detail areas such as I've mentioned, board composition, how board meetings are held, director's time commitments, the review of the board and chairperson, and also the procedures for new directors' appointments and resignations. So from a best practice um, perspective, I suppose just to quote the central bank, they said that good governments requires clarity as to the allocation of responsibilities, documented policies and procedures, structures which foster constructive challenge, and the effective provision of appropriate information to boards. Thanks, Alison. And as you mentioned, the, the corporate governance codes and prescriptive requirements, they don't apply to all categories of firms. So is there any proportionality here? And what do lower risk firms, what do they need to do? Yeah, that's right. So there is this proportionality, I suppose, both in terms of 
the requirements that apply to different types of entities, ranging from banks down to kind of e-money firms. And there's also then proportionality in terms of even within some of the domestic codes, some of the requirements apply based on your PRISM rating. So there are kind of various requirements and codes which are quite prescriptive, and Alison has run through them there for different categories of firms based either in legislation or in codes that the central bank itself has issued for different sectors like investment firms or banks or insurers. But then I suppose other firms such as e-money and payment firms, credit servicing firms or retail credit firms, they wouldn't have a prescriptive corporate governance framework set out in a code but nonetheless they'll be expected to apply good corporate governance as regulated firms so this has really become clearer more recently and through authorization guidance that the central bank has issued for those firms and also in kind of more broader industry-wide dear ceo letters for example in relation to anti-money laundering or fitness and probity in terms of some of the feedback that the central bank has published as part of its ongoing and themed inspections that it undertakes there are also some aspects of corporate governance in guidance which applies to some of these kind of smaller firms so for example there's outsourcing requirements and there's AML guidance and they would include corporate governance principles around oversight and, and the board's involvement in managing regulatory risk so there are kind of minimum expectations which include having robust oversight frameworks in place ensuring that the board receives sufficient and detailed reports and management information reviewing the board's composition and director tenure as Alison touched on assessing INED independence having succession plans plans in place, establishing clear reporting lines and documenting roles and responsibilities clearly, and then evidence and compliance through board packs and minutes and having clear processes in place for how board minutes are actually reviewed and approved. Thanks, Lorna. And turning to the employment side and, and, and HR, Karen, what are the HR policies and tools available to businesses to drive good practice or even excellence in terms of good corporate governance in a regulated firm? Uh, yeah, thanks, Cathy. Um, it, it's an interesting question. And, and even before I start to talk about the HR policies and the HR tools, I suppose there's probably four aspects um, from an employment perspective that, that businesses should look at in terms of trying to implement excellence in terms of corporate governance. And I would say the first is just to pick up on what Lorna and Alison have already spoken about, is ensuring that people are clear on their responsibilities and that they're accountable for the role that they perform. I would say the second important piece then is having good HR policies, which will help to support either any deviations from those standards of excellence or indeed to uh, prevent them happening in the first place. The third piece that I would say that is important is training. And the fourth piece is ensuring that overall there is a culture of excellence, accountability, and, and in particular, a speak up culture in organizations. Now, of those four points, maybe what I will just focus on briefly are the HR policies policies that you asked me about and the HR tools. And I think most usefully for a business, what they can do is look at their suite of policies which drive good performance. So for example, many businesses will have quite a detailed performance or capability procedure. And a procedure like that or a policy like that that is effective will typically have a sort of an early warning system. So for example, when somebody is hired to come in and, and uh, take up a new role, it is really important to use the probationary period to monitor and give feedback to ensure that appropriate standards of performance are being delivered. I think it's also important to 
ensure that other policies which support performance, such as the disciplinary policy, the protected disclosures policy. So, for example, where an employee has a concern about conduct or performance in the organization, that an employee feels clear and able to raise any issues that they have. And then finally, I would say the grievance procedures and the dignity at work uh, policies are also really, really important in terms of driving governance, accountability, and excellence in the way that roles and responsibilities are carried out. So I think in summary, you know, driving the culture of an organization, ensuring this good quality training, ensuring people are clear and accountable, they're all really, really important. And they're not specifically employment law issues, but from a pure sort of HR or employment law perspective, I think it is really useful for a business to look at those policies that I mentioned and just to make sure that they're fit for purpose. Thanks, Karen. And Alison, over the last 12 to 14 months, as a result of COVID, the world of corporate governance is, is evolving like, like all everything else. Do you think the virtual board meetings are here to stay? And what needs to be factored into planning virtual meetings from a regulatory and corporate governance perspective? It's definitely a hot topic at the moment uh, when considering what's working and what isn't and, and where we will all go when we do go back to the office in whatever ca- capacity that is. But there's definitely pros and cons in my mind. In my experience, I've probably seen virtual meetings be be more effective without the need for travel, which is obviously beneficial from a cost perspective. Meetings are easier to schedule as directors have more availability. Less travel is also also potentially giving directors more time to prepare for the meetings. The forum for discussion is more open over Zoom or whatever platform is being used. The chair has more control over steering the meeting. Feel individuals are less likely to speak over someone, for example, like in in person meetings if there was a person who once dominated discussions they might tend to be quite quieter giving more room for a constructive challenge and meaning the meetings are are running smoother and decision making is more effective maybe from a timing perspective with the meetings being more efficient they're less likely to run over giving attendees back part of their day rather than having to run over to the the other side of town to to get to another meeting to add to that previous attendance at meetings by senior management would have been limited due to travel and schedules and room capacity. But now those involved in the day-to-day operations can join the meeting to provide additional input and context in in decision-making. That being said, there's obviously some issues uh, with holding meetings virtually, like the dreaded freeze camera from connectivity issues or connectivity issues due to limited Wi-Fi in rural areas, time differences for directors being overseas, and one I might be guilty of being more distracted being in your home environment when, when you're on long meetings over Zoom. But you could also argue that the limited ad hoc discussions and lack of general human interaction could be negative to the decision-making process as individuals could be less likely to put forward their views. We are seeing some clients arrange virtual informal coffee catch-ups before board meetings so they can discuss more freely some issues to be raised at the board rather than holding the meeting up itself. But all in all, I think a hybrid of virtual and in-person meetings will develop over the next few years with maybe shorter ad hoc meetings taking place virtually and then the standard full quarterly board meetings being held in person. From a corporate governance perspective, I suppose the main focus here is that the meetings should essentially run as if they were held in person and that corporate governance requirements need to be maintained, such as documenting discussions and challenge accurately, ensuring minutes and board packs are kept secure and there's a quorum and a chairman is appointed.
appointed, so on and so forth, so that firms are still required to to meet their obligations from a corporate governance perspective, regardless of the meeting is virtual or in person. That is a really interesting set of observations there, Alison. And, you know, if you look at the debit and credit side, it looks like it might be coming down almost in favour of virtual meetings. So I'd say they are here to stay, but I I do agree. I think it's the documentation and making sure everything is recorded and and that there is room for challenge even in in the virtual environment. So, Lorna, the central bank is placing a, a heavy focus on culture and challenge at board level. How can firms get this right and be in a position to demonstrate the right culture to the central bank if if required. Yeah, and this is a bit of a hot topic at the moment. I've seen an increased focus on culture probably since the issues emerged relating to the track and mortgage examination back in 2015 and it's it's increased ever since and the central bank in particular has been quite focused on culture and has called publicly for a new individual accountability framework to be introduced which would include a senior executive accountability regime or SEER, as people are calling it, which would be quite similar to that regime that's in the place in the UK the last five or six years. So we've seen the central bank really focus in on culture when they engage with firms um, on an individual basis, but we've also seen them express their expectations through a number of speeches over the last few years. They also published uh, quite a detailed report on behaviours in the banking sector, which focused mostly on the issues they identified in relation to tracker mortgages. So tone from the top, I think, is a key part of promoting the right culture in a firm. We always recommend culture should be built into board reviews to demonstrate to the central bank that this is being considered by the firm. And there are a number of different aspects to culture. For example, is there a strong speak-up culture in the firm? How is the firm's culture demonstrated? How would senior management or directors describe the culture at the firm if they were asked to do so by the central bank? Is management happy with the culture or is there a target culture which the firm is working towards? And if so, what are the main changes that are being introduced? What are the main behaviours that the board and senior management champion within the firm? And are those communicated clearly to staff in terms of what behaviours are expected of them or behaviours which aren't acceptable? And how does culture feature in board meetings and other senior management discussions? I suppose, can the firm evidence that culture is important and is being monitored if asked by the central bank to do so how does management and the board respond to challenge at board meetings or from staff as part of broader feedback is it welcomed and is there sufficient diversity of thought at key discussions i think non-executive directors as well play a key role in terms of feeding into a firm's culture and bringing that objective view and developing tone at the top for the board they also have external points of view from other roles that they might hold or other industry experience so they're quite a key role i think in terms of developing in the culture and in challenging positions that are adopted by the business. Thanks, Lorna. Yes, the holy grail of measuring culture is going to be preoccupying regulated firms for, for some time to come. But those were really good, really good indicators, actually, and, and measures that, that, that you've given there. Just focusing in on SEER, which is preoccupying all our members and, and our listeners. Lorna, have you any update on that or any, any further insights? Yeah, it's definitely on everybody's mind and um, the central bank and the media are kind of repeating the call for, for an individual accountability framework following some of the recent enforcement actions. So it's definitely something that to the fore of everybody's mind and it will be a shift in terms of how regulated firms operate and how, you know, um, collective responsibility kind of moves to individual accountability and that, that that will be a cultural change for people. So we don't have an update yet, I suppose, in terms of the draft legislation. It, work is underway, but we don't have, there's no draft 
draft out there that we can review. There's been fairly clear proposals um, which have been around for a while now in terms of what it should look like. And I think it's being closely designed based on the UK model, but there are some kind of key differences um, between the, the some of the exceptions that the, the UK made versus how the central bank has approached the proposals. So it remains to be seen what the actual final regime will look like when we see the legislation. I guess it's not down to the central bank itself to publish the legislation, but it will be involved in the consultation process. So I think a key thing for industry will be to feed into any consultation process and to make sure that, you know, things like proportionality are taken into account or another thing that's come up is, you know, the role of the independent director and, and how should they really fit into a senior executive regime because they're not really executives involved in the business and, you know, how how should they be captured if at all? So there's, there's a couple of key questions that have come up through just early discussions with firms. I guess a lot of the firms that we work with will be international. So a lot of them are already subject to the UK regime and will be quite familiar with that. So they, they've been living with this for a couple of years and they kind of have a, a good understanding of how it all works. The proposals are that there'll be a phased implementation. So primarily kind of larger investment firms, banks and insurers will be captured first and then third country branches. And then over time, it'll be rolled out to other regulated firms. So that's helpful in terms of allowing for some kind of implementation period initially by the bigger entities, which should be better set up maybe to implement these kind of requirements. And I guess the central bank is already using serial-like concepts in applying fitness and probity. So a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of overlap in terms of the PCF functions, which might now become senior executive functions under the new regime. And PCFs having kind of clear understanding of their role and responsibilities and what they're accountable for as a PCF. So it's not entirely new, but there are some new things coming in. There'll be additional conduct standards similar in style to the fitness and probability standards or the minimum competency rules, which will apply to senior executive functions. There'll be new business requirements for the firm itself. And there'll also be requirements for all staff so there's, you know, there's a couple of different moving pieces and parts to the regime and there'll be a new certification requirement under fitness and probity. So at the moment, the PCF or the CF themselves just signs an annual confirmation that they continue to comply with fitness and probity. Under the new rules, the firm will actually have to certify that it's happy that the person continues to comply. So that would be a big change and will probably lead to a bit more due diligence being done on an ongoing basis. And we've seen that in the feedback from the central bank and the dear CEO letters. So I think this will evolve over time and I don't think it'll just come in day one and, and, and apply but I think you know hopefully there's a consultation process there's an opportunity for industry to give feedback and engage um, there's been some really useful lessons learned from the FCA and the PRA in the UK in terms of their regime and the kind of things that they looked at when they adopted you know proportionality and decided how to implement the rules for different types of executives and different types of firms so I think we could learn a lot from from that UK approach. Alison, just to introduce diversity, which is burgeoning theme for boards and regulated firms, it has been a key theme of the central bank, uh, something it's, it has really been an embracing in its public statements, you can see it, and it's going to remain a key focus for regulators globally. What actions are you seeing firms take in relation to diversity and inclusion? Yeah, Cathy, 100% I agree. In the context of culture and conduct and behaviour, the central bank has been emphasising the importance of meaningful diversity and inclusion in the leadership of firms. As you say, it's been a consistent theme um, in its recent public statements and is likely to feature in future regulatory guidance. In its strategic plan for 2019 to 2021, um, it recognised diversity as being an essential driver for improvements in the governance of regulated firms. And it noted that it can 
considers lack of diversity at senior management and board level to be a leading indicator of heightened behaviour and cultural risks. The central bank, to Lorna's point on the role of INEDs, uh, they also have remarked that they expect invest independent directors to bring something different and has remarked that higher levels of diversity at senior levels can contribute to the reduction in the likelihood of groupthink, increasing the level of challenge and improving decision-making and risk management. The demographic analysis report that was recently published by the bank, which primarily focused on gender diversity, highlighted low levels of diversity in, in senior roles. The report highlighted that while slight improvements in the levels of diversity have been noted in several sectors at managerial level, there continues to be a significant gender imbalance in submissions and consequently a lack of diversity in applicants seeking appointment at most senior levels within regulated firms. Just from a statistics point of view, within the largest high impact regulated firms, men hold 85% of current PCF positions in the asset management sector, 78% in the banking sector and 74% in the insurance sector. Gender imbalance was also raised by the bank late last year in respect to the thematic review of fund management companies' governance, management and effectiveness, noting that during the course of its reviews, they noted a significant gender imbalance on the boards of fund management companies. Of the 1,654 directorships, only 266 of those roles were held by women, which accounts for 16%. So in terms of what we're seeing firms do, Firstly, we're seeing a large number of firms implementing board diversity policies. This is already a requirement under the corporate governance requirements for insurance undertakings and also under the requirements for credit institutions. And the requirement is for the board or the nomination committee where one exists shall establish a written policy on diversity with regard to the selection of persons for nomination to become members of the board. Also, as part of the thematic inspection for fund management companies, the board is given an expectation that firms should consider gender diversity as part of their overall governance review when taking the findings of the letter into account. We're also working with clients to implement diversity as part of the overall performance assessment of the board by including such questions in in the board assessment questionnaire, such as um, has the board considered its composition with regard to whether an increase in diversity of age, gender, educational or professional background would provide a broader range of perspectives or insights an internal challenge to the board. Does the board periodically assess and monitor the adequacy of its approach to diversity? And has the board considered whether it would be appropriate to formally document its policies and procedures with regard to diversity? One of the biggest hurdles, I suppose, of increasing board diversity is that most boards tend to have low turnover rates. And so as Lorna mentioned, we're seeing an increased focus from clients and also from the bank in terms of implementing succession plans and ensuring that diversity is considered as part of the overall process for appointing new directors. Thanks, Alison. And if any of our listeners want to hear more about diversity and inclusion from the central bank themselves, we've had central bank guests, Shauna Cunningham, head of AML and Enforcement, talked about the central bank's agenda on this and Mary Elizabeth McMahon in our International Women's Day podcast. So I'd recommend that our listeners dig out those podcasts as well and listen if you wanted to hear more from the central bank on that. Karen, if there are issues with governance, What can businesses do in terms of tackling those who are responsible? How does a regulated firm navigate the minefield of employment law as it applies in these situations? What I would say is it's always important to take care when there are allegations of misconduct or unsatisfactory performance 
or issues which relate to how the employee is conducting themselves. And the reason I say that is because there is a very significant overlay, both in the contract of employment that employees will have, and and just from a constitutional law perspective, there is a very significant overlay of their procedure, which employers have to comply with and have to be aware of. So the significance of that is, if something is coming across your desk, which looks like it is either unsatisfactory performance or misconduct or or dishonesty or deviation from uh, cultural values or norms, then it is really important for the person who is managing that to liaise with the HR business partner and in terms of quite senior individuals or quite serious allegations of misconduct to consider taking legal advice, whether internally or externally. And the reason I say that is because a deviation from fair procedures in handling any of these issues could result in quite significant legal liability for a business. Um, So, for example, it's important that any employee who is charged with misconduct or or significantly poor performance, that they are clear on what the allegations are against them. It's very important that the employee is presumed innocent, um, if you like, before they are judged guilty. It is important to act in a manner that is, I suppose, balancing moving swiftly through the process with giving the employee enough time to prepare their defence. It's important to keep the process confidential. It's important that an employer is not seen to be jumping to conclusions or drawing inferences which aren't supported by the evidence. In summary, it is important to protect the reputation and livelihood of employees as far as is possible. The final point that I just just make in relation to that, Kathy, is I mentioned just a moment ago about the significant legal risk that can be created. That can take two forms. The first is a statutory unfair dismissal claim and the compensation that the Workplace Relations Commission can award to an employee who is the subject of an unfair dismissal can range from two years remuneration to five years remuneration and in some situations limited to financial loss. Now it can be less than that but I just think it's worth mentioning that because those sums can be quite substantial. And the second form of redress that an employee can take is where a process is manifestly unfair, an employee in Ireland can go directly to the High Court to seek an order restraining a process or a dismissal which is done in breach of that employee's entitlement to fair procedures. So it's a significant enough undertaking to tackle those who are perceived to be responsible for deviations from acceptable uh, standards within the workplace. But I suppose if there's one key piece of advice to take away, it is to take care when when tackling these issues. And Karen, what if there arises a problem with someone who who is a PCF role holder? Are there any particular considerations in those circumstances? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Kathy. And both uh, Lorna and I work fairly regularly um, in partnership to guide employers who have difficulties with PCF holders as to how to handle that. So maybe I can just respond from an employment law perspective, but equally important is the regulatory framework. And, and maybe I'll hand over to Lorna just in a moment and she can speak to that aspect of it. So in relation to a PCF holder, obviously by definition, we're talking about somebody who's who's 
quite senior, who's obviously well remunerated. And all of the principles that I just outlined in relation to, you know, the importance of the presumption of innocence and fair procedures and all of that, that still applies absolutely where you are dealing with a, with a PCF holder. It is really important to ensure that you are very clear as an employer as to what the difficulties are, that you put those to the PCF holder well in advance of you taking any steps which could be adverse to the PCF holder, that you treat them with fairness, that you allow, allow them an opportunity to respond. Uh, and as I mentioned, any adjudication of their guilt or innocence has to be done absolutely by reference to the principles of fairness. One point that I would also add is it is really, really important, as I mentioned at the beginning, to use the probationary period well, monitor the PCF holder, give Give them coaching where necessary, give them feedback. And, and frankly, if the business is not happy with performance by the end of the probationary period, then that is the uh, point at which you need to either tackle it and, and, and agree that uh, the PCF will not continue or you provide the appropriate coaching and training and, and the PCF then is, is able to meet the expected standards. Now, that all sounds fine and well from an employment law perspective, but there are some very significant considerations from the regulatory perspective as well. But I will let Lorna speak to those. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, so I suppose the fitness and probity regime has to be layered on top of the employment requirements where the function is a controlled function and where, where that regime applies. And the Central Bank has published a Dear CEO letter in April 2019, where it really honed in on its expectations in terms of firms uh, failing to report issues to the Central Bank. And they call out a number of instances where the Central Bank itself has had to detect issues relating to fitness and probity for those in control functions, but where the firm itself hasn't actually reported the issue to the central bank. So I think the key message is that the fitness and probity regime is it's, there's ongoing requirements and it's, it's ongoing obligations on the firm to make sure that anyone in a control function remains fit and proper for the duration of that position being held by them. And if there's an internal issue which relates to fitness and probity, this has to be escalated internally and subject to the employment law side of things would then have to be reported to the central bank um, under the fitness and probity regime and the firm would also then need to look at whether or not it could continue to allow the person to remain in that role where there's concerns over fitness and probity so I think you have to look at the two in tandem when when the person is in a controlled function not all issues that are employment issues would necessarily be a fitness and probity issue so that's that's obviously an important distinction to make and, and that's something that you know firms would have to consider on an individual basis depending on what the issue is but certainly the central bank has called this out as a key failing by firms that there's a sense of frustration that the central bank has to continually go to the firm with an issue rather than the firm self-reporting that there's a fitness appropriate issue and the firm really managing that internally in, with its own fitness appropriate procedures. Thanks Lorna so a lot of change is coming. Okay well we, we've come to the end of our podcast and it just remains for me to thank Lorna, Alison and Karen for sharing those insights. It's been it's been a really valuable session and I know this is going to be really useful to our members and listeners so thank you very much. Thanks, thanks, Kathy, Kathy. And thanks, thanks for having us. We we're delighted. The professional diploma in compliance is designed for those who work or aspire to work in a professional capacity within a compliance function. It is a level seven qualification on the NFQ and accredited by UCD. On successful completion of the program, you can apply for the ACOI designation. The LCOI designation 
is the industry benchmark designation for practicing compliance professionals and satisfies the Central Bank of Ireland's minimum competency code. To find out more, contact ACOI at info at acoi.ie or log on to our website, acoi.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.